Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In our ongoing exploration of who gardeners are, where gardeners are, what they are growing in this world, and why that matters to all of us, I'm pleased to be joined this week by the team at the Institute for Applied Ecology, literally, Ecology in Action. Their mission is to conserve native species and their habitats through restoration, research, and education. They envision a world where all people and wildlands are healthy and interact positively. They envision a world where biological diversity flourishes and environmental challenges are met with a social commitment to solving problems with scientific principles. And in many ways, this all comes back to an abundant and healthy seed supply, which brings us to the Institute's Native Seed Network and their coordination of the upcoming Native Seed Conference, being held virtually February 7th and 8th. The conference connects research, industry, land management, and restoration professionals, providing an opportunity to develop relationships and share information about the collection, research and development, production, and use of native plant materials, including seed. Given that gardeners are land managers in their own right, this is the kind of information that informs good garden decision-making for all of us, and I am excited to serve as the keynote speaker for this event. Here to share much more about the conference and the work of the Institute and their Native Seed Network are key members of the Institute team pulling the conference together. Alexis Larson, Morgan Frankie, and Tom Kay, welcome to Cultivating Place. Hi, thanks for having us. Yeah, we're very excited. Thank you. Looking forward to chatting more. I would love to have the three of you introduce yourselves a little bit more, including uh, your title and role there at the Institute for Applied Ecology, and something about how you personally found your way to the work you do there. Let's go ahead and start with you, Tom, as executive director. Well, thanks, Jennifer. I started out as a very interested teenager in the natural world. And I'm now the executive director at the Institute for Applied Ecology. And and I came to this role via working for a state agency doing plant and nature conservation, and then getting a PhD in plant ecology from Oregon State University. And uh, once I'd completed that PhD, I started looking for ways to put my interest in applied ecology to work on the ground. And in 1999, founded the Institute for Applied Ecology so that I would have a a better way to to do that and decided to found it as a nonprofit organization rather than a for-profit consultancy, because I really wanted our impact to be about getting work done on the ground rather than making money. And I wanted to be perceived that way as well. So I'm trying to shift my role now into doing more research and and practice. So uh, thanks for having me here. Yeah. Let's go ahead and start with you, Alexis. 
tell us sort of the same thing, your your title, your role, and a little bit about how you found your way to this work. Yeah, I'm the so I'm the program director for our plant materials program. So I oversee the whole program, which includes a two and a half acre native seed farm, a really strong seed collection program. Uh, we coordinate two regional seed partnerships and, of course, coordinating this national native seed conference. And prior to moving into this uh, more management role, I was our native seed partnership coordinator at Institute for Applied Ecology. And I've been working in the field of restoration and conservation for over 15 years, working in rare plant conservation, invasive species management, and salmon habitat restoration. And so this current role really merges my love and passion for native plants, as well as project management and partnership building skills. I love working with people and working with the plants. That's great. And let's go to you, Morgan. Uh, give us the same kind of, of information about your role and, and your history and passion for this work. Yeah, thank you, Jennifer. I'm the plant materials coordinator at IAE, and my role includes a wide variety of things, but things like seed procurement for restoration projects. I work with our farm and with other growers in the region. I manage our seed inventories and storage and facilitate seed collection projects, as well as the National Native Seed Conference. Um, and so over the last decade, I've worked in academia, field stations, nonprofits, kind of all over the country and the Mariana Islands. Um, and it was varying from ecological research projects to more conservation-based projects and then habitat restoration. And so with each new position that I was taking, I was found myself really gravitating towards plant materials work and the challenges that we face with sourcing, you know, a diversity of genetically adapted plant materials, especially when you're thinking about these large-scale rest restoration projects. So um, naturally, IAE was a great fit. And I'm really happy to be here and to be able to engage in multiple facets of this type of work every day. For the kind of edification of listeners, describe all that is involved in the in the phrase plant materials, rather than just saying plants. Like, why do we use this? And why is that a kind of level of specificity that is important? We're talking about seed, potentially also bulbs, potentially some plants, some cuttings. Um, it just, depending on the project, really requires different types of plant materials. But we focus a lot on seed and bulbs here. Okay, good. I think that's a kind of clarification. The founding of the Institute, give us a little bit more on the history of why you founded it and then how you actually got it off the ground with with a board, with interested members, with employees, whatever it might have been. Well, the Institute for Applied Ecology has been a journey. For me, it as a founder, it started from a desire to be able to implement some of the conservation research and applications that I've been getting involved in at a larger scale and really try to make a difference. I'd spent a lot of time actually monitoring rare species populations and gotten very good at that. And then my PhD was in using those data to model how populations would vary through time, that kind of thing. But what was missing for me personally was using that information to actually start changing things on the ground. Instead of watching things decline and their demise, 
make a change. So um, we started getting involved in a variety of rare species um, projects in our first year. Most of them were still monitoring as a way to learn more about species. But very quickly, we started getting into finding out ways to improve populations by, say, trying different management practices on two side-by-side populations and seeing how they are doing and which management treatment to use in the future and, and make a population grow. Or taking parts of a plant, usually seeds, or growing them into plugs, etc., and then putting them out on the land and trying to found new populations, get new populations established, or add to existing populations, uh, augmenting them as it were, to make them bigger and, and, and start to grow. So that we weren't just watching and modeling and trying to understand, but making a change. And that's been one of the most rewarding parts of this organization for me and a constant thread as our as we've evolved. You know, we we started just with a, a conservation research program, but then very quickly added uh, what we called the Native Seed Network, which was a way to build capacity for native seed production and consumption in the United States. We were really trying to serve as a catalyst for the native seed industry to bring sellers, producers of seeds together with seed users, restorationists on a website. Kind of, we, we were thinking of it as like eBay for seeds. Back then, eBay was <laughs> brand new. And it, but of course, we didn't do any financial transactions. It was really a way to help growers put their plants for sale on the internet and for restorationists to find them and then use that seed. And what's what's interesting is although that website has sort of contracted over the years as we lost some funding, we've recently regained some funding and we're going to be relaunching it and expanding it back up again. So that's very exciting. And that will be the nativeseednetwork.org. Uh, it's still there, but we will be revamping it. But, you know, to more on that story, the organization has evolved very much. Uh, after the Native Seed Network was added, we actually started doing restoration on the ground through that network. So we were producing our own seeds under, under contract with farmers and using that seed to get restoration done. Because we found out very quickly that in order to do restorations, we had to have seeds and right. they weren't available. So we had to make them available ourselves. That's it was it was do that or don't do the restoration. And so we just did it. And it was really fun to see. You know, we were putting species that had never been into production or only rarely uh, into agricultural uh, grow out and getting seeds off of them. And now there's a network of, of excellent growers in the Willamette Valley and in other parts of the country that make these seeds available for restoration. We also then found various parts of our community who wanted more education in the area of, of conservation, of landscape conservation. Uh, it might be for particularly plants, like a high school teacher who's teaching botany, or it might be other grade school teachers that were just getting their kids outdoors. And we started an education program. And so that became kind of the third leg on our stool of uh, making impact in our area. So, uh, and then in 2015, we had one of our top staff members, long-term staff members, Melanie Geisler, 
leave our organization in Corvallis and move back to New Mexico, where she was from, because she wanted to be closer to her parents while she was raising her family. And then after a year or so, uh, she was very interested in, you know, networking and getting more work down there herself. And she and I, in a conversation, uh, came to the conclusion that we should really start an office in New Mexico as well. And so uh, Melanie was the perfect person to get that off the ground because she was such a strong networker and uh, really knew her field just more than anybody. And that that office has grown uh, considerably since then. So in in eight years, nine years, it's it's become really a, a going uh, nonprofit itself in in New Mexico. It's all part of Institute for Applied Ecology, but it's our Southwest branch, and uh, that's been extremely rewarding to see that happen. So you know, again, we we started with a focus on research, but very quickly shifted and evolved into an organization that does more than research, although research is very important to support the other things we do. But the getting seeds produced, the getting the restoration on the ground, the opportunity to work with the whole industry. And in 2010 was our first native seed conference. Uh, so actually, that was about 14 years ago now. We we're able to uh, have an impact that is kind of all about plants to start with, but plants as the base of the food chain, the base of ecosystem function, so that we're, we're able to parlay that, that information on how to manage our vegetation on our planet into a healthier, more resilient planet. So I think the importance of the seed, and of course, this was the seed, <laughs> pun intended, for my most recent book, What We Sow, with seed being not just the basis for our plants, which are the basis for our food chain, but the basis of so much else in our world, uh, culturally, economically, socially. And I, I think that one of the things that's so beautiful in in how you have grown to have these three uh, pillars, if you will, of research, uh, seed growing and supply and nurturing that supply chain, as well as nurturing education uh, at all levels uh, from young people who might then feed up into the Institute uh, and just caring for seed, period, but also the the field of this seed-based restoration ecology uh, as a whole. So let's go back over to uh, Alexis. Give us a little bit of that same kind of evolution of your role with the Institute as we go forward. Yeah, so well, I started at IAE as the Native Seed Partnership Coordinator in October of 2019. And I was housed under our Habitat Restoration Program. And that's where our farm manager was housed in that program and a plant materials technician who also helped on the farm, but also with restoration projects. And as I joined the staff and we all started interacting more, we realized that we really needed to communicate more on a weekly basis um, because there's so much of our work that's collaborative. And I think out of that also grew a need for this plant materials coordinator because we were producing a lot of seed at the time. Our farm really got going, I believe in 2016 or 2017, but really started taking off a couple years after that. We were contracting with a lot of our federal and state agency partners to grow seed. We had 
grown a large inventory of seed that we were tracking. And so that kind of brought Morgan in as our plant materials coordinator to track all these different pieces and places that they go. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. The Institute for Applied Ecology, based in Corvallis, Oregon, and Santa Fe, New Mexico, is the umbrella organization for the Native Seed Network. We'll be right back for more after a quick break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation, funding initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the rich intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Thanks to a generous matching grant from the Caddo Shaw Foundation for 2024, All of your donations to Cultivating Place go directly toward helping us meet that match. All contributions help, from $10 to $10,000. Go to the support button at the top of every page at cultivatingplace.com to chip in. Thank you in advance for supporting this program you love to grow along with. Hey, it's Jennifer. You know, I I actually really love to think of all of our gardens as being applied ecology. That's what they are. They are, as well, applied artistry, applied design, applied spirituality. But applied ecology allows, and perhaps even demands, a whole other perspective, doesn't it? We're back now to our conversation with Tom Kay, Alexis Larson, and Morgan Frankie of the Institute for Applied Ecology, which since 2010 has convened a regular National Native Seed Conference to support and grow the best of native seed knowledge and supply in our world. As we come back, Alexis, the program director of the Institute's Plant Materials Program, shares more about how the native seed farm and plant materials program is interdependent with but different than the -the on-the-ground restoration work of the Institute. It really became this its own program that, you know, was beyond what restoration was doing, was very different than what restoration was doing. Right. So we became this plant materials program. You know, I think of our start as maybe early 2021. I moved into this program director role uh, in the fall of 2021 and in a really official capacity later that in the next spring. And we just keep growing. We have at least seven full-time staff members right now. We're getting ready to hire another full-time staff member, which will be the Native Seed Network coordinator. So they'll take on working with um, web designers and growers to rebuild that website, reaching out to seed partnerships, creating regional hubs or a hub for information for the seed partnerships, but as well as for restorationists and beyond. Um, And then we're also hiring several seasonals. And so that's really exciting just in terms of people wise, but we also are just getting ready to move into and start working in our new seed facilities, a new greenhouse, a new seed cooler that's our own. 
and also um, our seed shop where we can clean seed and dry seed and do all of our inventory and distribution of seed there. So it's just been really exciting to be part of this program as we we get bigger and realize, you know, we need more people and the funding is there. And so that's been really great. <laughs> Yeah, really great. Now, one question on that. The the funding, is some of this coming from uh, the state and federal programs to improve uh, and hopefully stay biodiversity loss with the, the 30 by 30 programs? Where is the bulk of your funding in this kind of growth, Alexis? Yeah, a lot of it is through the federal agencies, mainly Bureau of Land Management and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We do mm -hmm. work a lot with the U.S. Forest Service as well. And then several state agencies. Uh, there's a, a kind of a restoration-based agency called the Oregon Watershed Enhancement Board. Mm -hmm. And they have funded our Willamette Valley Native Plant Partnership and the Coastal Native Seed Partnership um, for several years now. They've been big supporters of both of those partnerships, which produce genetically diverse seed and distribute it to the partners that are involved. And we also get uh, some state agency funding like uh, Oregon Parks and Recreation Department. And um, we also search around for foundation funding and other sources, so. Yeah, yeah, great, that's perfect, thank you. Uh, Morgan, tell us a little bit about the evolution and growth of, of your, what you are overseeing there. Yeah. Um... I don't have too much to add uh, as far as like program growth and what I've experienced. I think Alexis really touched on kind of the ways that we're growing. I think one thing that has come out from all of this is just how important communication is and how much communication actually goes into all of these different um, pieces. And I think that's, it's sometimes easy to, uh, forget that, you know, but um, really it takes a lot of work to kind of just keep everything on top of everything. And that has been, you know, enlightening to me. And we've really changed a lot of our protocols and procedures to just try and be as efficient as possible with our communication within the program, within our organization and with mm -hmm. our partners uh, region wide. Um, so that's been really fun <laughs> to do. Um, and then as far as uh genetics and different species that we're growing. I think Tom and Alexis, feel free to chime in here as well. But, you know, one thing we do have to be careful of, we, we are growing different plants for different regions. And so some of it might be coastal lowlands area, or we're doing Willamette Valley area, or we're also doing some mid-elevation East Cascades kind of work growing. And occasionally some from lower uh, California, it's just where the needs are and what we need to uh, what people are looking for. And so we do have to be careful about if we're doing similar species from each of those regions, we want to make sure that they're far enough apart. They're not at the same, that there's no cross-contamination of those genes, like that gene flow isn't there uh, for those species where it wouldn't necessarily be otherwise. Now, <laughs> when we talk about climate change, uh, I'll let Tom actually talk more about that in the future. But yeah, those are really important considerations. And so sometimes we have to say, no, we can't grow this, but we try and work with other growers in our regions to set some of these up to actually right. create those um, boundaries. Because either the research hasn't been there or the partners that are buying that seed also don't want it yet to be uh, crossed. So. Right. And I think that really underlines your original statement of 
to this answer, which is the importance of communication. I mean, I think one of the things that became clear to me in the in the research I did for the book was just how many people are on the ground caring and trying and growing and doing their best. Uh, but to get them coordinated and all in conversation so that, you know, you, Morgan, know what the group in Santa Fe is doing, what the Organic Seed Alliance is doing, and what native seed they might have in in their sort of purview is, like, that is, I I can see why the communication is the very first uh, kind of directive that you you need to get on top of uh, if it's all going to go smoothly and to the highest standards of what we want our restoration to be with this these big restoration projects underway across the country. Do either you, Alexis or Tom, want to add anything to that uh, statement about diversity and tracking where your different genetics are coming from, et cetera, before we move to um, the biggest communicator of all, which is the conference? Yeah, I just wanted to add a little note about what we grow and and gene flow. Um, we grow several threatened and endangered species, and each of those has a different recovery zone. And so keeping those separated is really important so that those don't cross-contaminate. And that's, you know, follows US Fish and Wildlife guidelines. And then Opposite of that is our regional seed partnerships that are really looking to add more diversity into the produced seed, mostly of workhorse species, you know, species that are known to do really well in a production setting, but then also in a restoration setting um, when applied by seed. And so for the Willamette Valley Partnership, our kind of genetic requirement or baseline is collecting a species from at least 15 different sites from across the whole Willamette Valley, which is its own level three ecoregion. And so that was a decision made by the committees at the beginning of that partnership. And so it's really interesting that we have these very like different, we have a very like single source fields and then these huge multiple source fields to really increase that diversity and capture what those plants are doing across the Willamette Valley. Nice. And those are, I think, those are great examples. Can you give us an example of uh, one one of the, the rare species that you're keeping separated, uh, a specific plant name and, and how that's going? And then two, can you give us an example of one of those workhorse species that would be uh, relevant and applicable across a much broader region of the network? Yeah. So, one of our uh, main species is a threatened species, a lupin called Kincaid's lupin, and it is the host plant um, and the nectar plant for the Fender's blue butterfly, which I believe is endangered butterfly. And those are often used. Uh, those are often used as our um, kind of cover photo species and things. Um, and opposite, on the other end of that, is a a plant like Western Buttercup that is used um, in prairie restoration projects throughout the valley and is found throughout the valley. You know, you see these uh, fields of yellow in the spring and it does really well in a production setting. It produces a lot of seed and that's been a really um, popular one and one in high demand for our partners. Tom, did you want to add something there? The butterfly was downlisted to the thread. Good, good news for the butterfly. Yeah, it is. That butterfly has been 
downlisted. It means taken from endangered down to a threatened status. So that's a notch away from extinction, which is great in large part because of the management that has occurred in these habitats, including establishing new populations of Kincaid's lupin, its host plant. And that restoration with these seeds that are for its nectar plants and its host plants, it pays off. It's really dialing back the risk some of these species have of extinction. And I love that because that right there is the application of applied ecology. That's where the research, the education, the communication all come together and we get the result we are hoping for. That's that's right. That's what, that's what makes it exciting and yeah. rewarding. Yeah. So I would love to move on to the uh, the first conference back in 2010. Uh, and maybe that's you, Tom. Uh, what was the impetus for the first National Native Seed Conference. Where did you hold it and what were its goals? Great. The first National Native Seed Conference was put together because there was a clear need for producers and consumers of native seeds to get together and understand each other's perspectives uh, what what limits production, what limits the kinds of seed that get to be used. And so we can talk and understand where each other are coming from. And we, you know, we learn in that process that we don't all agree uh, because, you know, if you're a farmer and you're producing seeds, one of the things you want to be able to do is to sell to as big a market as possible. Of course, right? You need your your business to be viable. And if you're a restorationist, often you want your seed to be from a particular local area. You, you don't want to use seed from some distant location. So uh, there is a tension between the, sort of the grower industry and the user industry in how uh, we can make the right seeds that everybody can use and find a compromise, some sort of uh, place where we can all work together. And many of those conversations really led to the concept of a seed transfer zone. This is sort of jargony, but it's a, a region within which you can move plants around and they'll still be all well adapted. You're not, you know, you you're moving things to some extent that they're maladapted. And so if you can grow for a seed transfer zone, then you know where you can market and you know where you can buy it, so to mm -hmm. speak. So that's one of the outcomes of, of one of the first conferences was really driving home to the academic and the practitioner community that this is something we really need. It was a great conference, the first one. It was about 180 people and we held it at the Snowbird Ski Resort outside of Salt Lake City. So it's kind of small and contained and everybody really had to rub elbows together. And it was an eclectic group, right? We had seed growers, we had restorationists, we had policymakers, we had academics and graduate students, we had people from NGOs like ourselves, etc. And uh, it was it was just fabulous. And so uh, there was a, you know, we sort of at the end had our, our, you know, a roundup of the conference and asked people to raise their hand if they wanted to come to another one and everybody's hands shot in the air. So we knew we had to do it again. Uh, it's it's tough to do conferences all the time, right? So every year can be tough. So we set a, a uh, target of doing them every other year. And so then the next one was uh, uh, an, another success. We grew to over 200 uh, registrants. We we moved the conference over to uh, Salt to uh, sorry Santa Fe, New Mexico. We held it there for. 
two times. And then we moved it over to Washington, D.C., and we held it there two times. There was a gap during the pandemic. And unfortunately, we were already late in planning and getting our conference off the ground when the pandemic hit. So we missed a few cycles, actually. Okay. But towards the end of the pandemic, we decided we wanted to do a, a seed conference, kind of a smaller one for some of our local seed partnerships. But we opened it up to anybody who wanted to register. We thought we might get 50 or 80 people to join in. And we had 500 people sign up for our first virtual conference. There might have been some pent up demand for engaging because of the, the pandemic, but the result really opened our eyes that we need to get going on this again. And so we then held the most recent one, which was in Washington, D.C. And again, we had 500 people, but this time in person. And uh, so our next virtual conference will be coming up. But that's that's the the germination story of that seed that has grown into a a really consistent and we hope valuable part of the the seed industry that really embraces how eclectic it is. It's not an industry of just one of just growers, say, or of just users. It's a it's a conference for a broad group, in, including uh, people who are just getting into the the field, people who have been in it a long time, policymakers, uh, those of us who can bring indigenous knowledge. Uh, we really want a, an eclectic and, again, and uh, diverse set of perspectives uh, because that's who we are. Yeah, yeah. And that is the beauty of SEED. It is intersectional with all of those uh, different uh, ways and means and motivations. And I think we are lucky to live in a moment where we are able to reinfuse that generalism back into some of these fields in, in truly authentic ways. And so let's move over to you, Alexis and Morgan. Uh, you, the three of us have been in conversation for, for several months now about me taking a part in this upcoming virtual conference. Tell us about your planning for this conference um, and when it began, what the sort of maybe themes are for this upcoming conference, uh, and, and let's maybe get to the some of the highlights, some of the speakers, and I would love to between the two of you, have you share, you know, some of this great diversity of voices and storylines that will be available to attendees of, of the conference? Let's go ahead and start with you, Alexis. Yeah, as Tom mentioned, we had that virtual conference in 2022 and then a huge demand for the in-person conference, which was only this past March of 2023. And we did reach our capacity of 500, but we also had to create a wait list for folks to attend. And we realized that's how high the demand really was. But costs are also really high for attending these in-person conferences, especially in you know large metropolis areas like Washington, D.C. And so creating this virtual option uh, is really helpful to allow more people to access this information. And for our current upcoming conference, we're focusing on um, native seed production and seed-based restoration with some talks emphasizing climate change and indigenous knowledge. 
And we chose to focus on those themes based on a survey we completed of the 2023 in-person attendees. And that was kind of what people really wanted to hear more about. We're also really excited to announce that we have a new addition to the program, um, which is the Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, and the Director of the Bureau of Land Management, Tracy Stone Manning. Uh, they'll be joining us to speak about the Interior-led Native Seed Initiative. And a little bit of a preview on some of our uh, production talks. We have some representatives from the Diné Native Plants Program and Coastal Salish Plant Nursery that will speak about like the challenges and successes with establishing their programs. And we also have several partnership-focused production talks from New England and Alaska, Montana, and Oregon. And the New England uh, Native Seed Network and this new Montana Native Seed Network or Native Seed Partnership. Um, yeah, both of those are pretty new just in the last couple of years. And we've been in discussion with them about lessons we've learned from our seed partnerships and challenges we've experienced. And it's really amazing to see them come out with strategic plans and announce their first production fields or they're working with multiple new farmers. And so we get to hear about, you know, these budding seed partnerships and how they're approaching this large scale production. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. The Institute for Applied Ecology is the umbrella organization for the Native Seed Network, who produce the regular National Native Seed Conference, this year being held virtually February 7th and 8th. We'll be right back for more with this crew from the Institute after a quick break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. You know, I'm wondering how many other people out there listening picked up on the fact that grassland restoration ecologist Justin Long last week and this team from the Institute for Applied Ecology this week both noted the critical importance of not just research, not just ecology and science, but of communication, effective and inclusive and wide-reaching communication across these fields for the true impact and reach of the work to grow to full potential, for not reinventing the wheel, for not staying siloed in our experience or knowledge or even in our dilemmas and stuck places. It's one of the reasons I do what I do, to learn more myself by listening to a wide array of growing humans and their wide-ranging endeavors, and to communicate back and forth with all of you. It's a sublime and reinforcing positive feedback circle, keeping all of us open and in communication. Thanks for listening. Thanks for responding. Thanks for sharing these growing conversations out into the world. We're back now to our conversation with Tom Kay, Alexis Larson, and Morgan Frankie of the Institute for Applied Ecology. As we come back, we hear more from Morgan about what we can look forward to on day two of the Institute's upcoming two-day virtual National Native Seed Conference. 
The second day is the big focus on the seed-based restoration aspect. Um, and there's going to be a lot of talks that are going to focus on things like climate change, seed treatments, how these affect pollinators, seed sourcing, and a lot of other things. We actually were, we had so many uh, abstract submissions that we decided let's switch it up a little bit the second day for the restoration work. Um, we're going to try lightning round sessions. So we're going to have two different lightning round sessions, um, six speakers each who will have 10 minutes to kind of go over their extended elevator pitch. And then we will also have three 30 minute uh, presentations that each one kind of hits a different part of the country. Um, and then we will also um, another I think cool little addition is we'll have a speaker from the Center for Plant Conservation who will be discussing um, their applied plant conservation course, which should be really great. So we're really excited and maybe have a time at the end for a little bit more discussion with some of those lightning round speakers as well. It is so exciting, the inclusion of the top federal agencies uh, and and having Secretary Holland be a part of this conversation, you know, with the, the National Seed Strategy and having a native seed program from this interior uh, is, is just, it's exciting and it underlines, I think, the importance of this having hit a, a even larger mainstream radar that will be necessary. Uh, it, it might not be necessary, but it's certainly a whole lot more helpful to have them working in step with the ground uh, roots, grassroots efforts that have been on the ground for, for many, many years now. I wonder, um, Tom, I would love to come back to you with your your longest range kind of thinking and dreaming and hopes for this work. When, when you think about the importance of the science of the large-scale restoration-level application, how does this trickle down and over to nurturing the the awareness and the empowerment of, say, home gardeners or just everyday people for whom seed is often invisible, but without whom, uh, whose awareness or without whose raised awareness, so much of this can't reach the levels we want it to reach? Well, Home gardeners all the way up to people who are restorationists at a landscape scale are many ways doing the same things. They are putting plants on the ground. They are doing so to attract wildlife or improve conditions for pollinators, that kind of thing, or make it an environment that they can appreciate and that is healthy for humans. Um, they're making decisions on which species to to plant. and which type of that species where did it come from they have to they have to decide those things then they have to obtain those seeds or cuttings or plants or whatever and get them in the ground and nurture them and I, I, so for my my vision really is that we're all doing this of a piece uh, together and now it's quite true that if you're working in a an, say a very urban landscape the kinds of ecosystem function that can result from your gardening are different than those that might happen for someone who's doing landscape level restoration over thousands of acres, of course. And so how you select your plants might be 
different through that filter. And, and that's okay. In fact, it's good that we think that these are different contexts, realize that and act accordingly. Um, some of our decisions uh, to, for what we use genetically might be much more important at a landscape scale than they are in an urban landscape where those genes may not be appropriate, but they're not going to go anywhere. You know, there's there's no connectivity uh, to wildlands, et cetera. So it really may depend on, on where we are. But I think Im imbuing the home gardener with more information about how they can participate, how what they do does interact with the, the wildlands around them is important. And there's certainly a, a lot of research these days in urban ecology to try to understand how urban areas host wild organisms, pollinators, etc. And there are some surprising aspects of that, where we, we learn that there's greater diversity uh, of the biota in urban landscapes than we ever would have thought. Uh, and that means there's there's great potential for gardeners to do more to make our our landscape so diverse. And I that one of the things that is so important about all of this is that humans need healthy landscapes to be healthy themselves. It is vital to us to interact with a healthy natural world. And that can happen on the scale of a backyard or a local park or a wilderness nearby. All of those contribute, but without any of them, we suffer, right? We, we, and so I, I'm, I'm talking about this because it's so important to understand that this isn't about planting pretty flowers because we think they're nifty. It's about human survival. We need a diversity of vegetation in our landscapes to have healthy, resilient ecosystems. And we need those healthy ecosystems so that they are providing the services we need. That may be the pollinators that, that make our crops yield well. It may be the microbiota that reigns on us as humans and is part of our gut and our skin and everything we are that make us healthy. All of these things add up to make or break for the, for the human species. It's not a small matter. It's a huge matter. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you very, very much. And I want to come back to you, Alexis and Morgan, as you are organizing this conference coming up and you are striving and I think already achieving with the, the agenda that we have for the conference in front of us, um, this idea of meeting the requested interests of last year's conference of uh, talks, you know, tying these talks into climate change, what we know about it, and what we know about what we can do about it, uh, as well as including many more indigenous voices and the knowledge held there, uh, as as well as you know, a, just simply a greater diversity of people in a greater diversity of places. You, we can see this already included in in what you have put together. As you are looking at this conference and then looking at the next in-person conference, which I, I believe is slated for 2025 in the Tucson area, um, 
what are your greatest hopes for for not just this conference and what you've put together here, but how that grows the next conference and the work itself? I, I would love to hear from both of you. Let's start with you, Morgan, and and come back to you, Alexis. Yeah, so I think you touched on it kind of in your question, actually. You know, one thing that we're really excited about with having this virtual option is just being able to have other people attend that maybe can't afford or it's not accessible for them to come to these in-person conferences, but they have knowledge to share and they would love to learn more about what's going on in this national scale as well. And it comes back to this communication piece. The more people we can include who are all like different steps and parts of this, you know, restoration supply chain, the more synergy <laughs> this like wide array of uh, knowledge can come together and actually do more and be better. Um, so I think just being able to have it be more accessible and be able to offer a virtual option, I'm hoping that we can start pulling in more and more people who maybe haven't heard about this before. Um, and I think we're starting to see that with some of the uh, emails that we're getting, which is really exciting. So what about you, Alexis? Yeah, to build off of what Morgan said, um, I mean, the communication piece is just so important. And after the 2023 conference, or rather at the 2023 conference, um, we had a, a presentation um, from Kay Havens, who is with the Chicago Botanic Garden, but was also a member of creating um, this report uh, that was published by the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine that identified gaps and barriers within the native seed supply chain and made recommendations for making improvements to those systems, um, to that system. And, you know, as we've now said a lot, communication was in those recommendations quite a bit. And so hosting this conference, learning uh, from folks, um, not only what they're doing, but learning about what they want and need in a conference. This is now the third conference I've helped coordinate um, and the fourth one with our in-person one in Tucson. And so it's really cool to see how we might on the work that we started in 2022, you know, that work being the team of Morgan and myself, Tom, of course, has been involved in all of them, but, you know, we're getting this historical staff presence that's really useful for that as well. And so, um, yeah, I hope by bringing people together, um, all of these pieces of the native seed supply chain and providing a place for them to talk and um, learn from each other, that can improve our restoration practices and uh, help mitigate yeah. some of that biodiversity loss that we've been seeing over the last decades. I would love to end with each of you reflecting if there is something you you would like to share um, about the, the ways in which this work is reimagining our way forward. And Having you share with us either either a, a try that again, either a success story or a challenge that taught you something meaningful uh, in the course of this work uh, that has helped to grow to grow you, and therefore I hope helps to grow all of us. And it could be anything. It could be from the very founding of of the work uh, and or it could be from the conference or a one creature that has been downgraded in its threat 
uh, or threatened status, perhaps. Um, I think people love to hear these kinds of specifics because it uh, puts a face and a a real consequence or uh, for the for the better or the worse on, on why the work is so important to everyone uh, who might be listening. Okay, I think I. I'd like to talk about a success then. <laughs> and I think that success is um, the plant materials program at IAE that has been developed um, between that recent assessment that I just mentioned, these new regional seed partnerships that have been forming, and this national focus on native seed. It really feels like we're, you know, about to jump off into something amazing in terms of increasing native seed, making connections and everything. And what I think is really neat about our program is that on this relatively small scale, you know, we represent a lot of those parts of the native seed supply chain. So we're really uniquely positioned to understand all of those links, maybe how to communicate just on this small scale. But as we've mentioned, it takes a lot of collaboration between all of us um, because we do everything from seed collection up to distribution. Uh, so there's a lot in between there, production, seed storage, these partnerships. Uh, we even you know, purchase some seed, contract with other local growers, and then distribute it to our restoration ecologists. So I think just the development of this program within IAE kind of going into its third decade of existence, um, as well as all of this national focus and momentum that's happening right now just right. feels really exciting and like a great success to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. And when you connect that into what's, you know, the the Northeast Native Seed Network getting going and the the work in Montana, like all of a sudden you plug in um, and you can kind of see, you know, a sort of mycelial mindset across the country uh, that is enlivened by uh, being interconnected. And that is a beautiful vision. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited about these new seed partnerships and the development of our seed partnership hub that will be as part of the Native Seed Network website. So we really can start to communicate and learn from each other because there is a lot to learn <laughs> about. A lot to learn and a lot to share. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And just to tag on to what Alexis was saying really quickly. Um, yeah. One thing that was so inspiring was being at the conference and being able to see these groups working together in real time and like exchanging information, giving us their information, being able to physically see kind of those connections forming um, and the amazing inspiration and ideas that everybody was getting from each other, particularly the partnerships that were just forming in Montana or, or other areas. Um, so that was just really exciting. Tom, anything you would like to add here as a, a success story? Yeah. First, I've got something I have to get off my chest and, and then I'll tell a success story. The, so one of the things that has emerged from all of these conferences and all of this work for me is just the really the, the crucial importance of diversity. And I really see diversity in, in three ways. One is there's of those species we work with, there's their genetic diversity. We need that genetic diversity to be resilient, to respond and be adaptable to a, a different environments on our landscape and changing environments due to the continually shifting climate. 
And one of the things that we run up against that's kind of a challenge is that with we, we, we tend to want local types because they're locally adapted. But with climate change, local isn't local anymore. Our climate now is like it used to be in Southern Oregon, and it's going to be more like it currently is in, in Northern California. So in our landscape, it's forcing us to consider how do we incorporate uh, a future adaptability into our current local gene pool. And so we're currently looking at ways to collect seeds from our kind of our adjacent watershed that's to the south and kind of stir those into our genetic mix when we're doing seed production. You know, a modest percentage, just but to give the seeds that we grow that adaptability, that resilience, uh, and we that gives our product that we're putting on the ground quite literally a chance to last decades uh, into the future instead of dying out right away and we already have data from research that other people have done that some of these species are starting to fail because their genotypes are not locally adapted anymore to the climate that's scary so that's pushing us into a different kind of management of genetic diversity and then the second thing we need is is species diversity you know we can't just have three or four plants we're planting everywhere we need dozens uh many plants because a healthy ecosystem is built on a high diversity of plants and therefore a high diversity of insects and other consumers uh, that come off of that point of the the base of the food chain uh diversity really is becoming a very clear driver of ecosystem resilience. It makes ecosystems more stable through time. That's really crucial. So that kind of species diversity, we need to work on that. We need to make sure we have enough of species in production to make our restorations really resilient, both genetically and then diversity and, and, and species-wise. And then the third kind of diversity is human diversity. That's one of the things I've, I've learned in my career is I came out of a, a grad school and thinking about the natural environment as sort of separate from people. And uh, it's, it's really about just focusing on what the natural environment needs. And I have been schooled by life to learn that it's really about people all the way through. And without uh, people being involved and all kinds of people, uh, people that make decisions, people that don't make decisions, uh, people that have indigenous knowledge on, on how the landscape can be managed differently than we currently manage it. Uh, scientists, of course, but we need all of these perspectives to come to a uh, ability to manage the land that again is resilient in the long term. We cannot do this from any single mindset. It's not going to work. We need each other. And the resulting improved landscape is for all of us also. We need to be able to be in it when it's appropriate and, uh, and have its benefits to our very psyches uh, permeate our, our cultures. Uh, so that's my, my soapbox about diversity. And then a, a, a short story on success. One of the species I've worked with for a, a few decades now is called golden paintbrush. 
Castilea Levisecta is its Latin name. And when I was a college student in Washington state, I became familiar with this species because it's uh, a rare species there. It became listed as threatened and uh, it had already become extinct in Oregon. When I moved back to Oregon after going to college, I really was very interested in its conservation and could we bring it back to Oregon? And worked uh, over several years to develop the protocols for germinating the seeds, growing the plants, and getting them out on the landscape. And over time, we, we've learned that it's a tricky plant. One of the tricks it has is it's a parasitic plant. Its roots penetrate the roots of other plants underground. And so it has a direct relationship, so to speak, with uh, the things it's parasitizing. It needs a high diversity of host plants around it that the number of kinds of host plants affect its survival. So that's one of the things we've learned is we need to restore diversity in order to support some of these endangered species. But we've gone in Oregon from the species going extinct sometime between 1938 and 1970, it appears, to we've got over 20 populations on the ground, uh, approaching 30 really, um, hundreds of thousands of plants. And last year, 2023, the US Fish and Wildlife Service removed the species from the endangered species list. And so it's been declared recovered as it were. So that's a success story. We're, we're very pleased about that. There are some caveats. I'm not convinced that it's completely viable and stable in Oregon. Uh, it's only been a, a little while since it's been brought back. But boy, it's sure nice to be able to walk out into a field and see thousands of these plants at some of these sites and know that we can apply ecology as a science to real world problems and in some cases solve them. It's really gratifying. I thank you all so much for your time today and the work you are doing in the world uh, and making available to so, not only available, but relevant and available to so many. Uh, it has been a pleasure to speak with you all today, and I am so looking forward to the conference on February 7th and 8th. Thanks, Jennifer, for having us today. Yeah, thank you, Jennifer. We appreciate it. Thanks very much for, for having us. And thank you, Morgan and Alexis. I'm really um, so grateful to have such a strong team at Institute for Applied Ecology. The Institute for Applied Ecology envisions a world where all people and wildlands are healthy and interact positively, where biological diversity flourishes and environmental challenges are met with a social commitment to solving problems with scientific principles. The Institute was co-founded in 1999 by now Executive Director and Senior Ecologist Tom Kay. Alexis Larson is the program director for the Institute's Plant Materials Program, and Morgan Frankie is the Plant Materials Program Coordinator. You can, of course, find the podcast weekly wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're subscribed to the program, you'll never miss a growing conversation. Join us again next week when we revisit the best of conversation with poet and gardener Camille Dungy, sharing more about her journey, personal and moving, in writing the book Soil, 
the story of a Black mother's garden. That's next week, right here. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription, and communication support from Deanna Newport and Matt Valiga. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Oh